0: Good morning, everyone. Most of you uh, know who Emily Saltz is. She's the vice president for external affairs and wants to make an announcement this morning.
1: Good morning, y'all. Um, I just wanted to come this morning and let you know that student government's number one priority is to represent the student body and to be able to advocate on your behalf when we are fortunate to speak to administrators, to President Garland, and to the Board of Regents. And one thing we realized is that it's really hard for us to voice student opinion if we don't know what student opinion is. And so we have created a new program. It's called Issue of the Week. And we have a different survey each week about a different topic that we want to know your opinion on. This week's topic is financial aid and um, we're going to collect that data and have it with us whenever we talk to these um, decision makers for the university so that we can say this is what students believe and The survey is available online at our website, www.baylor.edu/sg, And we also have tables set up. It's going to be Monday, Wednesday, Thursday around lunchtime in the sub, Tuesdays around lunchtime in the BSB, Monday evenings in the library, and Tuesday evenings in the slick. So come by and talk to a student government representative and let us know what you think. Thanks, y'all. Thanks,
0: Emily. Let's begin our time together with a moment of prayer. If you would pray with me, I want to invite you just in the silence of your own heart to be still for a moment and be grateful that you woke up today to another day. Be grateful that you have the opportunity to awaken to this day in particular. what's before you the possibilities of it the paths you can walk resources and gifts that have been placed into your keeping to be grateful for all of those who will befriend you and teach you challenge you in this moment of quietness just ask God to help you be open to it all and to receive it as a gift. Through Christ we pray. Amen. We can think about what we do here at Baylor or in any Christian institution like this in a number of ways. As you think about being in a university that is also somehow connected and central to its existence and mission is the Christian faith. One of the ways I think you can speak to that as you maybe even talk to friends back home, you can say, Baylor's a place that challenges me to try to ask and and think on the really important questions. The really big questions. What does it mean to be a human being? What it, What is the creation all about? Who is the creator? What is the creator like? What does it mean to be whole as a human being? And how do we get there? How is it that we somehow search for the good in life and the things that that make for a meaningful existence. In many ways, that's what it means to be a part of an institution like this in in Christian higher education. Dawn Eden is here this morning to help us think on one of those questions. How is it that we are whole? What does it mean to love? Dawn grew up apart from the faith in many ways. Wasn't a Christian. She went out of college and into young adulthood, began her career as a rock journalist, living in New York, You can sort of imagine it, writing for magazines like Salon and Mojo. She wrote uh, and edited for these tabloid newspapers like New York Post and the Daily News. That was the existence she had as a young adult. That was her career. And she was drawn into the Christian faith. She became a Christian. And it radically changed who she was. She's here to tell her story and also talk to you about the book that came out of that change as she really was converted, as she was changed. She wrote a book about three or four years ago that's been pretty popular. Maybe you've heard of it, The Thrill of the Chaste, Finding Fulfillment While Keeping Your Clothes On. She's going to talk some about that from her perspective today. She's been featured on NBC's uh, Today Show and on television and other venues. She speaks all over the nation and in Europe. And uh, she is our guest here today. She's here to try to help us. Think on things that matter most. Dawn Eden is our guest in Baylor Chapel, and I want you to welcome her now with me.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thanks so much to Dr. Burleson and to everyone at Campus Ministry for inviting me here. Well, I, well, this is my third chapel of, of the day, so I'm very happy to inform you the adrenaline is flowing. <laughs> You know, my book's called The Thrill of the Chaste, and right now the chaste is truly thrilled, <laughs> and, and uh, as, as you just heard, I, I wasn't always Christian, so it, I could never have expected growing up to be speaking here. Uh, I'm actually a convert from Judaism, and like you, I'm a student. Uh, i 'm currently uh, studying for a master 's in theology at the Dominican House of Studies in washington d c uh, are, are there Are there any other uh, religion students here any religion majors N- i see I see one uh, but you know even those of you who aren 't uh, theology or religion majors if you 're taking college courses in uh, in scripture, if you're formally, formally studying uh, Christian faith in any way, you're way ahead of where I was as an undergrad uh, because uh, my undergrad degree was from New York University. And like most of my classmates, I majored in relativism. And so I decided, it's true, and so I decided to go back to school because after my book came out, reporters started to contact me from media ministries like Focus on the Family and Catholic Answers, and they would they would say, we need a comment from an expert on chastity, so we thought of you. and I, And I thought, yikes! If I'm the expert, we're in trouble. <laughs> because my book may be many things, uh, but one thing it's not is a theological treatise. And so now... I'm learning in grad school the foundation for what Christians believe in the hope that by learning this I'll be able to deepen the effectiveness of my apostolate. And I've really been blessed in that uh, that apostolate. My, my ministry has so far taken me literally around the world. Uh, my book's in four languages now. It's in English, Spanish, Polish, and Chinese in Polish, it's called "dress czystosci. You know, it's like, "Can I buy a vowel?" And <laughs> and uh, I'm not quite sure what the Chinese title you know is. You know, I, I'm uh, I, I'm you know afraid. You know, it might be something a little different from the thrill of the Chaste. Maybe if I'm lucky, it's like you know, joy, luck, chastity, or something. <laughs> but it, but at least it is in that language, and and I've. I've been blessed to be able to give talks around the uh, the world at colleges and churches throughout America, Canada, Europe, and uh, world, at World Youth Day in Sydney, Australia last year. And in the course of my talks, I've had some interesting audience reactions, uh, but there was one reaction once from a young woman in Florida uh, that just left me speechless. I was stunned. Uh, it came after I'd given this talk where... I was discussing how modern society uh, ridicules virginity. And uh, an example that I gave in this talk was of uh, a 19-year-old male contestant on American Idol who had been on it recently. This was when I gave this talk last year. And uh, he had told the judges that not only was he staying a virgin until marriage, but he was actually saving his first kiss for his wife. And so then he auditioned and after after he had uh, uh, su- after he had sung one of the judges Randy Jackson said to him come back after you've kissed some girls. So I told this story in this talk and use it as as an example as as I said of how uh, of how it's really Countercultural to be a be a virgin, it, it goes it, it goes uh, against uh, the rules of, of society, and so virgins are are to be admi- admired because they're the tr- they're the true uh, rebels, and so afterwards this uh, young uh, blonde woman about thirty uh, came up to me very bubbly somehow bubbliness and blondness uh, go together, and uh, sh- and she gave me this big smile and she said. Thanks for giving a shout-out to those of us who still have our V-card. <laughs> well, that was just wonderful, and uh, I, I, I was honored. I mean, it's, it's been an honor for me since writing this book to hear from virgins who tell me that my book has encouraged them. Uh, and it's also a surprise, uh, because as much as I admire those who wait until marriage, Uh, quite honestly, I I didn't write this book, The Thrill of the Chaste, uh, for them. I I wrote my book for people who, like me, bought into the culture's empty promises, Uh, people who wanted to be married and who believed that the way to build a relationship that would lead to marriage was by having sex and uh, you know likewise i would it for people who as i had felt you know th- people who thought that they were doing everything right and are now haunted by the feeling uh, that they've messed everything up and can't go back and so my goal is to help them find what i found which is healing and hope and renewal in christ and so this morning i'd like to share with you how God's love touched me and enabled me to break free from a lifestyle that was destroying my soul. Some of what I have to share uh, may be a different perspective from what you've heard before, and some of it is painful, Uh, but if you can bear with me through the painful stuff, I promise you there will be a happy ending. Uh, As I mentioned, I was born to a Jewish family outside New York City, uh, my parents split before my sixth birthday, and my mother got custody of me and my sister. Now, as a child, I knew that my parents had used contraception. Uh, at first, you know, it's okay, you can just kind of figure out: well, they were married for 12 years. I have one sister. My my mom miscarried once. Chances are, over 12 years, they probably. Did it, you know, more than three times. You you can kind of figure it out as a child. Uh, And then when my mother gave me, it's true. When my mother, you know, eventually gave me the talk about contraception, she made it clear that she and my father had used it. Now, from an early age, and especially after the divorce, I suffered from loneliness and a constant need for validation from others. And looking back, I believe that this crisis of identity uh, that I faced as a child, as a teenager, and a young adult, had its roots in being a child of the contraceptive culture. Uh, Now, that may sound strange to you, but, but I'll explain. The point of contraception, as you know, is that couples should have only the children they want to have. It was Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who coined the slogan, every child a wanted child. That slogan has the word wanted in it. Being wanted is 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 good. So it, it gives the impression that the aim of contraception is a good. Now, I was a wanted child. So f- from the point of view of the contraceptive uh, culture, I was a winner. Uh, but when I realized that my parents had contracepted, then I knew on a subconscious level that they could have had more children, uh, but they prevented those children uh, who would not just have been, you know, just, just, you know, amorphous children, but unique human beings. They prevented those unique human beings from being conceived. So, I just happened to be one of the lucky winners of the sperm and egg lottery. Uh, You know, last night I was speaking to uh, one of one of the professors here, and I was telling him about my talk. And I asked him, "Can I say sperm and sperm and egg lottery in chapel? You know, is it okay to say sperm and egg?" And he and he said, "You can say sperm and egg, but it's a Baptist chapel, so you can't say lottery." Oh, well. (laughs) But, you know, the the point is that the fact that I was wanted only came from pure chance. If I had been born at a time when my parents were trying to prevent conception, I would have been a mistake. And, And so I believe that what I felt instinctively as a child uh, is a feeling that's shared subconsciously by our society at large and by young people in, in particular, uh, not just by those whose parents contracepted. Uh, it's the feeling that, that my ultimate value depended not on being made in the image of God, but on being wanted and loved by others, it's very dangerous to feel that because then, if the love goes away, you know, as I as I felt it uh, go away as a, as a, as a child when when my mother, you know, and my father after the divorce went into, each went into their own, own world. Um, if if you lose that sense of wantedness and, and being and being loved by by your parents, then. Then you lose a your the source of your sense of value, um, and you know as I say, this is felt not just by kids whose parents contracepted it 's in the air we breathe i mean the the law of our land says that only unborn children who are wanted have the right to life, and so As I said, uh, after my parents' divorce, my mother had custody of me and my sister. And by then, we had moved from uh, from New York to, uh, believe it or not, uh, we we moved down to Galveston. Any anyone here from Galveston? Yay! Go tornadoes! (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, after the divorce, I had a hard time relating to other kids. And, you know, I'll admit, you know, part of it must have been uh, because I was a a Yankee. I mean, I was in, you know, I was in grade school in Galveston, Texas, and I talked like this. So, of course, I was going to stick out a bit. Uh, But I think that the reason I had a hard time relating to them and and that that increased my loneliness was was really um, because my home life was so messed up. Uh, now, this was during the mid-'70s, uh, a decade that's now known by a certain nickname. Uh, c- can any of you tell me, you can just shout out, the, the, what's the nickname for the 1970s? The blank decade. Anyone know? Disco. The disco decade. Well, it was the disco decade, and, 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 I, and, I, and, I, conf- and I confess that as a, a fifth grader, I wore some pretty atrocious satin uh, outfits. <laughs> but no, um, the, the 70s was uh, known as the me decade. You know, whereas in the 60s, there was a sense that we're all in this together, even if we're all, you know, messing up and doing stuff that's wrong, at least it's all together. In the 70s, it was all about, about, about me. And uh, it, it was the decade of radical uh, ind- individualism uh, when... People instead of you know thinking about making sacrifices for others, they were thinking about themselves. It was a time when a lot of when a lot of parents um, you know felt that the best thing they could do for their children was to find themselves wherever that journey you know t- t- took them. So that, so they weren't thinking about being parents, and and that was how my my mom was. She felt that having been a suburban housewife in the 1960s, she had missed out on on all the fun. And so she determined to live this neo-hippie lifestyle that she had missed. um, And she tried to find herself. Uh, My mother tried to find herself through various new age movements following different spiritual gurus. And she tried to find herself through various men. Uh, Now, my father was much different. Uh, He, uh, we married a year after the divorce. He stayed married and he held traditional values. Um, but well, um, So my father could have, if, if, he, if he had had the, the desire and the strength, he could have made the effort to provide a strong and positive counter to the hedonism I was learning from my mother. But my dad didn't want to seem like a prude, and he was clearly uncomfortable setting down rules for a daughter he rarely saw. And so he never tried to teach me about sexual morality. It was simply understood that I would have sex when I was ready, whether I was married or not. And so as a child, watching my mother in her spiritual life go from following one guru to another, I got disillusioned, and I lost what little Jewish faith I I had. Uh, But what stayed with me was what she taught me by her sexual behavior— by my mother's sleeping over at her boyfriend's homes, having her boyfriend sleep over, uh, she taught me that uh, sex was just something that grown ups did because they wanted to. Marriage had nothing to do with it. There was nothing sacred about marriage, and there was nothing sacred about sex. And so uh, when I went off to college, uh, going to New York University and living in a dorm in Greenwich Village, it seemed like the whole world echoed with uh, the messages I had learned from my mother, uh, the network TV shows, the, the movies, the women's magazines. Everywhere I looked, sex was treated as a consumer item, uh, just an object to be had. Sex was considered just another dish on the cafeteria menu of life. I mean, it was a highly prized dish. It seemed like everyone wanted it, Uh, But the culture viewed sex as an object without any context, as though sex just had this existence out there on its own, and we could just take it. George Michael could sing, I want your sex. And people thought it made sense, as if one's sex or having sex could be just detached from who one is. And indeed... That's the, that's the culture that, that I found myself in as I started to become uh, se- sexually active, that, that culture of, of, uh, of detachment. You, you see, I, I didn't um, set out initially to have casual sex. I wanted to be married, and I believed that being open to premarital sex would bring me closer to marriage. And as I said, you know, I had this crisis of identity, this feeling of not being loved, and this need to find myself. And so I followed the example, you know, of the way my mother had tried to find herself through uh, through men, hoping to find the one man who would who, who would who would love me, and then I could be who I discover who I truly was. And as I say, that leads to a culture of Detachment and this is something I only understand with hindsight as a christian i couldn 't have explained it to you this way back then. back then, all I knew was that I was unhappy having sex outside marriage, but I just thought that I was unhappy because I was doing it wrong. you know You, you read magazines like like Cos- cosmopolitan and the men 's you know magazines too, and you know if you 're feeling regret after a hookup, you know they say it 's just because you 're you're, you're doing it wrong, that you're you know, entitled, they teach sex as a matter of entitlement, the idea that you're entitled to your pleasure, and if you do it right, you can disconnect your personal identity, your emotions, from the pleasure that you're seeking through through sex. As I said, you know, although I was willing to settle for pleasure, I won't lie to you, I really wanted more than pleasure, I wanted love, uh, but I found myself experiencing the, the soul-destroying, spiritual effect of detachment because, uh, because the sex act that I experienced uh, when I started having it, it, it bonded me to my partner whether I wanted it to or, or, or not. And there's a reason for that biologically. I mean, this goes back to Darwin. When a, a, a man and a woman have sex... Nature doesn't know whether or not a, a, chi- a child will emerge from that union. What nature does know is that if a child does emerge, it's the only way the child's going to thrive, uh, if, from a natural point of view, is, it, is if the man and woman stay together. That, that's how the child's chances of survival are the greatest. So nature you know, has dictated, and I certainly believe God has dictated this in, in, in nature that in the act of sex, hormones are released in the man and, and the woman that create this feeling of, of, bo- of bonding. There's a scientific basis f- for this. And so in practice, what it meant was that, was that when I was trying to find love through having sex, I would feel bonded to my partner, whether I wanted to or not. And I certainly didn't want to be hurt now let's say I was in this relationship that I really hoped would lead to marriage, but coming against the fear of being hurt, when I would feel the bonding through the sex that I was having, I knew, and my partner knew, that you know, as long as we weren't married, as long as we hadn't you know, made those vows, then even if we were saying, oh, this is going to lead to marriage, at any time before making that final, that, that final you know, vow, I or my partner could just walk out the door and say, "See ya." And so, when when you're in a sexual relationship and you and you know that even if you're in love, even if you want it to be married, even if you want to be to be married, what happens? What I experienced is that I had to keep trying to detach because 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 I would keep feeling bonded from the sex and then have the fear of rejection. So try to protect myself by building up a shell and it was just this terrible horrible irony that the very sex that I thought was going to bring me this great intimacy actually made me less and less capable of being able to even sustain the kind of relationship that would lead to marriage you know, it's, it goes down to a you know, very basic truth which is that you can't seek permanence through impermanence that's why the divorce rate is so much higher among couples who live together before a marriage than among couples who, who don't. Uh, because uh, having sex before marriage, contrary to what the culture says, is not practice for marriage. It's practice in looking at the other person and thinking, you can be replaced. It's practice uh, for divorce. None of this I knew at, at, that, at that time, um, Now, I became a rock journalist not just because I loved music, although I did, and and not just because I found rock musicians attractive, although I did, (laughs) but I wanted to work in that field because I wanted to be around people who were talented, valuable, important, because I was lonely, I was depressed, and I didn't know who I was, and I really believed along those lines that, that no man would marry me unless I had sex with him. I believed that there was nothing intrinsically valuable about me that could possibly make a man willing to wait to have sex with me until we were married. There's an old song that goes, you're nobody till somebody loves you. And I really believed that. And then one day, a crack of light Entered my dark world in the most unexpected way. Uh, it happened in December of 1995, when I was 27, which now makes me 41. And <laughs> and thank you. It's okay to laugh. Uh, she's 41. She's talking to us about sex. Eek! You know. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, I was doing a telephone interview one day in 1995 with the leader of a Los Angeles rock band called The Sugar Plastic, not a Christian band, and I thought that I would ask him a very intellectual question. So, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to show him how smart I was, so I asked him what he was reading lately, and he said he was reading a novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, by G.K. Chesterton. Anyone here read any Chesterton? Anyone? Yes? Yes? Uh, then then you know where this is going, because you can see, as soon as the name Chesterton comes up, you know what's what's going to happen. I had no idea. I just went out and bought this book thinking that it would give me something to talk about with this musician the next time he was in town. I'm sure I never would have picked it up if I had known that G.K. Chesterton was this great Christian writer whose work was responsible for rescuing C.S. Lewis from atheism. Uh, Now, the book grabbed me right away because it was about rebellion, and I could relate to that because I thought that I was this great rock and roll rebel, Uh, and as I read it, I realized Chesterton was contrasting two kinds of rebellion. One kind of rebellion that he was describing was the false rebellion, the rebellion of the anarchist, uh, which was just destructive, and he was contrasting that with what he believed was the true rebellion. Which is the rebellion? uh, uh, That's the 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 rebel whose rebellion is creative. Uh, You know, it's those who are upholding truth and beauty against a world that's fallen into darkness. And as I was reading this book, I started to feel uncomfortable because I realized that what Chesterton was saying—the subliminal message, so to speak—was that the true rebels were Christians. And I just thought that was crazy. I just thought that Christians were this totally conformist, white-bred mass, you know, these moral-majority people who ruled the world. And, you know, as I said, what I wanted more than anything was identity, to be an individual. And I thought the only way I could be an individual was to be against whatever Christians were for. Uh, But Chesterton's vision haunted me, especially one line in The Man Who Was Thursday, where the character who represents the true rebel is arguing against the false rebel, the, the anarchist, about what constitutes poetry. And this true rebel says, quote, The most poetical thing in the world is not being sick. Now, I started to read all the Chesterton I could get my hands on, and more and more, as I was inspired by the vision of this salty Christian, I desired with all my heart to experience healing. I I really wanted to have my life ordered from the top down uh, so that I would know this poetry of not being sick. And so that eventually led me to seek out what had influenced Chesterton which led me to the Psalms and the Gospels. And finally, one day, ten years ago this month, the door of my heart opened, and I had an experience of the presence of God. And for the first time in my life, I truly believed that God existed, that he cared about me, and that Jesus was his son. And so I was baptized, praise God, and I became a baby Christian. And I knew that my lifestyle was in opposition to my new values. So I, I went to the bookstore hoping to find a book that would show me how to uh, practice chastity. I, I didn't know what chastity was, but I figured it had to do with just not having sex outside marriage. And so looking for a book that would show me how to do this, the only books I could find were these books written for teenagers on staying pure till marriage which is very depressing you know if you if you if 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 you feel if if you feel like you know this is the only way that i can that i can get to heaven and i've and i've and i've missed it you know i'd pick up this book with a flowery title like lady in in, in waiting and it would say um, of course you've been keeping yourself pure for your prince and i would just feel horrible i'd be thinking you know to the author Sorry, lady, that train has left the station. <laughs> um, and so I thought, you know, okay, then I'll just I'll just be all repressed and pent up and and, and practice abstinence, and I'll just deprive myself. And I, I thought to myself, okay, God, I'm doing this for you. You better appreciate it. <laughs> but I, I quickly found that, you know, I couldn't stay abstinent, when I was resentful about it, and, and, you know, I'd come from this vicious cycle of boyfriend breakup, boyfriend breakup, boyfriend breakup, and I'd gotten into the cycle of, of, of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. Uh, What broke me out of that cycle was when a friend of mine who was a seminarian gave me a copy of a book about Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body that was an eye-opener for me because it was the first time I learned what the Church has always believed about chastity. And this belief is shared by Catholics and Protestants, although it's not something you hear about much. And it's that chastity is not a negative. Chastity is a virtue, and virtues are always positive. Virtues enable us to do something we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Uh, So I I learned that, you know, I had just been thinking chastity is a no to sex outside of marriage, which for a single person it it is. Um, But what I learned from reading about what Christians believe is that chastity is really so much more than that because it's a yes to God. Uh, Chastity is the virtue that enables us to love fully and completely in every relationship, in the manner that's appropriate to the relationship. And God's ordained and designed our bodies in such a way that sex is appropriate only to the married relationship. And I knew, when I was reading about this from my own experience, uh, what they call you know, natural law, that this was true. I was unhappy when I was living against God's, God's design. I, I may have had some pleasure, but I didn't have that that joy and that fulfillment of really, know, of really knowing that I was returning the love that God had, had given me by living the way he wanted me to live. And, and so, you know, just as the married relationship is so much more than sex, chastity is so much more than not having sex. Uh, it's refocusing your relationships so that every person in your life, family, friends the person on the street stands in for God. How can I love God through loving this person? And learning that was the key to healing for me because I always thought if only I could find someone to love me, then, then I could find meaning in life, find my place in the world, find my identity. But the truth is, we find our true identity, our true individuality, not when we're loved by another human being. We find it when we love. I learned that the great tragedy in life is not the tragedy of being unloved. The greatest tragedy is the tragedy of not loving. Uh, This is how we become more than conquerors, through Him who loved us. That's that's Romans eight thirty seven. Uh, it's in the love that Christ gives us that we become the individuals we were created to be through loving others. That's why, you know, I can never understand how ch- people say chastity narrows your 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 your, your world. Um, you know, I, I've been living chase, chastely now for several several years, and I, I'm still in hope of, of of marriage, and it's not easy, uh, but uh, but my world is so much wider now, and I have more joy and more love now than I did when I was when I was trying to find love through through sex, you know. It, I was living a narrow world before, in a narrow, narrower world before I was chased. I was like the characters on Sex, on, on Sex in the City, you know, uh, living with blinders on, always on the prowl. Chastity has opened my world, and it's given me a sense of wonder and thankfulness. And I'm so thankful to be able to share this joy with you all today. Thank you so much, and God bless you, and please pray for me. Thank you.